Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Welcome to Rex Sykes Movie Beat Conversations with Filmmakers, where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you'll learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV, and we will talk to everyone in front of the camera or on camera and behind camera. And whether you're a filmmaker or a fan, there'll be something for you. So now let's move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. My guest today is Mr. Bill Dever. He's a producer. We're going to be talking to him in just a moment, and we'll come back and, and let you know all about that. The chat room is open, so if you're listening live, you can join us in the chat room. All of the interviews, over 400 hours of professional filmmakers, are archived at rexsykes.com. That's the official URL. It's R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S dot com. And... You can go there and listen live right there from the website to any program that is coming up and, and is broadcasting live, or you can go back and listen to the archives anytime, 24-7. So we hope that you do and that you uh, enjoy all of the offerings because all of the filmmakers there share their expertise with all of us to help us make our projects quicker, uh, more efficiently, cost more cost-effectively, and to advance our careers and to... Um, make things happen in our lives. And so be sure to go and listen to uh, all of the uh, fabulous, fabulous shows that are there. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Bill Dever, and, uh, and we'll go on. Bill Dever is the founder of Polyscope Media Group. He's the president of Spark International Corporation. He's produced a number of movies. He's worked uh, on uh, movies such as uh, Personal Exemptions with Nat Fabre, Monster Cruise, and Resurrection. Produced and directed the films China Frost and Mountain Fury. And he served as a producer for Sci-Fi Channel original movies Fire from Below, Camel Spiders. And he wrote and produced the movie, um, I believe it's Gila. So uh, without any further ado, let me uh, bring on Mr. Bill Dever. How are you? Good morning, Bill. How are you today? I am well. Well, that's good. I'm glad to have you here. Uh, and you're in Indiana? I'm in the motion picture capital of the world, Franklin, Indiana, which is uh, about 25 minutes south of uh, Indianapolis. Uh, it's a small town and, uh, nestled in the bosom of uh, the heartland of the United States. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm glad that uh, uh, the capital is shifted inland, and uh, lots of things are happening from there. Well, let's start right out. Let, let's talk about that, because um, you're in the Midwest. You've worked uh, both in the Midwest and elsewhere. Uh, some of the movies are higher budgets, some are lower budgets, but a lot of the filmmakers who listen are, are emerging filmmakers. My listeners are everyone from A-list uh, very successful producers, directors, actors, screenwriters, all the way down to people who are picking up a camera for the very first time. Um, and, and outside of studio you know, productions that are now in the hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, many of us do low-budget films, and that can go anywhere. I mean, a low-budget film nowadays is, is you know, $50 million. But, but going further 
further south on that. Um, there's a lot of constraints put on filmmaking uh, in terms of budget and, and what you can accomplish. Let, can we talk about that? What, what, what do you find about um, your ability to produce and get uh, low-budget movies financed and made? Well, it, it, it's really tough. Um, um, I, uh, I've worked in, in Los Angeles, and I've worked in other places around the world. I, I really enjoy the lifestyle of, of, of the place where I live, but you know, it, it's 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 a struggle at all times. It's it's not easy, um, and it's equally as hard in L.A. Uh, because there's much more, you know, buyers or competitors for those investment dollars. You know, it, it always takes a lot of time, and it always um, takes leaps of faith to go produce your films no matter where you're located. Um, in many ways, it's easier in the Midwest, and in many ways, it's harder. Um, it's easier because you don't have uh, a jaded attitude towards filmmaking. There's still that sense of awe, so you can bring a lot more resources to the table. On the other hand, there, there is not a level of sophistication um, or infrastructure to support a, a film industry here. So when you um, venture into a place like where I live, it, uh, it's, it's always a challenge, but it's a very rewarding challenge um, because you know what you're building is something new, something's fresh, and you, you get the thrill of innovation. Um, you make a lot of mistakes, but you know you're, you're lucky that... Uh, you're in a place where you're not under the microscope. And I think that what really intrigues me is that I, I think there's a general shift of decentralization um, in, in the film industry. Um, I know that you live around Milwaukee, Rex, and, um, you know, there's all kinds of little things can pop up. To me, you're... Uh, you're getting back to a dynamic like the film industry had in the early 60s um, where there is an ability to uh, innovate outside of Hollywood. And I think there's going to be a period of time when that's going to bring some pretty exciting projects to the forefront. Uh, well, that's very cool. Um, what uh, What can... Um filmmakers do, those who uh, are busily pursuing their uh, passion, to uh, help themselves, uh, one, uh, make the connections they need, finance their films, and, uh, and, and get them, obviously, to market? Well, that's a question I ask myself every day. I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm not on this radio program, or blog radio program, as, as any kind of expert. Uh, all I can do at best is share some of the challenges and the experiences I have faced and continue to face. Um, the best bet is, you know, um, there are a few rules. You have to find people that believe in the concept, that, that believe in you, that believe in uh, the idea of, of what you're trying to do. It's obviously... Movies, at best, are a, a speculative investment. 
movies at best are uh, an investment that really has to be uh, looked at, and, and there has to be other reasons than financial return to invest in a low-budget film. Uh, unfortunately, that's the case, and it, it's something that I've learned uh, going down the road that in, in today's market, uh, with all the venues we have, and because so many people are, are making films and so many people are trying to bring them to market, and we have iTunes and Hulu and Vudu and Netflix and Redbox, and we have movie theaters and you know ten thousand cable channels and emerging uh, channels on on Roku box. It's become a very polluted marketplace, and there's really no single way to define uh, your market other than you have to have a project and, and you have to you know stick with it. Uh, we made Gila you know, almost two years ago, and we're still in the marketing phase of it. We're still, you know, trying to push it in, into into the market, and we think it's a good film. We believe in the film. Um, and right now it's in front of Redbox, and it's in front of Netflix, and it's, but it takes time. And, you know, I, I think that making the film is 30% of it, and marketing the film is 70%. And, and that was kind of a, a rude awakening for me, um, that that, in fact, was the nature of the business. You know, when I first started, I, I thought, hey, you know, I'll make this film, everyone's going to say it's great, uh, and they're going to rush to me and, and buy it, but it's not the case. The case is you, you make the film because you, you love to make films and you love to tell stories, and you really enjoy the process, but at the end of the day, um, you have to have the ability to sell the film. And that's becoming increasingly hard, not because the market's not there, it's just because the market is in a huge state of flux and is seems to be having some trouble defining itself. Uh, that, that's very interesting. When I, when I started my career as a teenager in, in Hollywood many years ago, um, the conventional wisdom at that time was you made a movie, if you made a movie for $100, your marketing budget that the studios would spend or distribution companies would spend was three times that. It was at least $300 to get the movie out. So, you know, what we learned very early on was that you make a movie for as low of cost as you possibly could, and and then somebody would pick it up and then distribute it for, you know, as much as they possibly could. Um, but with all of the shifts that have happened, uh, filmmakers are, are more apt to have to either distribute themselves or to, to try and get a distribution deal. It, it, it makes sense in this day and age, I guess, to raise a certain amount of money to produce. Um, let's say you raise $1,000. And if you could make your movie for $100, you now have $900 to market and produce your movie because more and more it seems that, the, that that's where... Uh, filmmakers need to concentrate their efforts. Does well, that, uh, you know, I, I, the the thing is, you know, the 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 skill set that goes into producing a film uh, is a totally different skill set that goes into making a film. You know, right. into marketing a film, right. m- making a film presentable for the market 
and and, and it's that level of, of schizophrenia is rare. I, I think that there are um, people find themselves drawn to one or the other, um, and of course the the money really is in the side of uh, you know marketing the film because they're in first position right. to get any income derived from the uh, sales of those films. What really what really surprises me is is that that filmmakers have not come to the conclusion that maybe the best way of working in, in today's market is is working cooperatively where uh, filmmakers can say, well, I, I'm, I'm capable of producing uh, one or two films a year, and Bob is capable of producing one or two uh, films a year, and uh, Susan is capable of producing one or two films a year. Why don't we collectively form distribution outlets um, that will represent the interests of our um of our product, our, our movies, and I, I think that the real issue today is that the sales of the film, you know, it, it really is the tail wagging the dog. That you know, people. Uh, I guess what concerns me is is that while there's great innovation occurring in the film industry and, and great films. The market is not taking, you know, artistic or financial risks and allowing their films to be um, seen. The market is saying, well, it has to be this kind of film and it has to be a tentpole movie and it has to be based on a cartoon or it has to have this or it has to have that. When I was growing up, watching films you know we had films like Eraserhead come into the uh, theatrical medium even though it was late night um, midnight movies but today we you know we don't have that space anymore we don't have that market dynamic and, and that for me is very concerning I think that we as uh, film people, we as film consumers are not demanding variety. We end up with this continual flow of product that in in many ways um, the market has been trained not to think cinematically. Um, Let me ask you a simple question, Rex. If Easy Rider came into the theaters today, would it do any business? It's a fascinating question. I'd like to think so. My guess is probably not. You're, you're um, probably correct. The answer would be not. Uh, for my perception, is the market does not have the tolerance. You know, I always go back and I and I tell people the market has changed. We have films like uh, Jaws, which when it was initially released. It was released in 600 theaters. And I think the maximum amount of theaters it showed in was 900. When Carrie was released this weekend, to pretty mediocre business, it's, it's probably going to be released to around 3,300 theaters. 
So therefore, the dynamic is gone. The ability of there was something exciting at one time of people, you know, standing in line to see a movie, you know, waiting to see a show, waiting to talk about the movie, and it was an experience and it was an event. And today, it's just a process. Right. So, right. and and that's probably my, you know, biggest regret about where the industry is happening is is that the multiplex. Yes, have have uh, really ruined the experience because it's been a process instead of a show. The whole concept of of uh, of what we see and what we know as uh, the film dynamic, you know, going to the movies, that whole experience has been cheapened. Well, you I know? think I mean I I really appreciate that that point, and um, you know, growing up in Westwood. The, the, where there were more movie theaters per capita than anywhere else in the in the world, essentially, and they were, you know, first run large. There was the Fox and the Village. You know, um, geez, I can't even think of all the names of them. But anyway, and I remember when Gailey's, uh, it was a man theater, if I remember right. Van Gailey opened up a Cineplex, and there were five theaters at the time, and you went from you know going across the street to these you know forty foot, sixty foot screens to, you know, small screen movies and at that time in the 70s you're like you know there's something wrong with this it's just this is just wrong and 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 even in those early days sometimes you'd have cineplex you know they'd bleed over from theater to theater so you'd hear the sound in the other theater while you're trying to watch your movie and stuff but it just it 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 really did cheapen the experience but it has become a way of life and um and and it's interesting that 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 among other things maybe maybe um, kind of the part of that, what you call the process, just kind of an unconscious malaise, a kind of uh, apathy toward the whole thing. Um, That's because it's, it's been made not to be special. Yeah. The, I mean, the real, and, 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 and you know, I remember going to films in a 1,200-seat Cinerama screen um, the complex, and I saw Lawrence of Arabia there when mm-hmm. it was re-released. It, it's a profundity of experience. It, you know, you, it's like going to church. You know, you're going to see something special. You're going to see something that is defined, that is artistic, that is not a process. That is something to be imbibed and to be experienced. And that's been taken away. Uh, I think that that is an intriguing point. I mean, the, the idea that it's the specialness that's lost. I would, I would add. That sadly, though, the film industry is no different than any other industry in that, you know, there are artists who sit around for for centuries who starve until somebody took it and put it in galleries and marketed it. There are books that sit, you know, uh, in in bookstores that aren't sell, sold unless somebody markets it. There's shoes, there's food, there's everything. And But what's happened in this world, maybe, or this country is that everything's become, I mean, food has become bland, uh, our entertainment has become more bland. Everything seems to be processed and, and watered down and mass, you know, distributed and 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 the the specialty of, and I make the comparison of home cooked meals by comparison to going out for fast food. It, it, we we've taken and made our entertainment cheap, and I mean, even though it costs a fortune to make particular products, we we've made the experience cheap, and so uh, and and we've become conditioned 
to all of it, I think, as a society, to just not care much about anything. And so we don't, well, as it, filmmakers and audiences, demand better movies. Well, the thing is, is you know what you know. Then you're getting into a term of, of what is a better movie, and, and and from my perspective, you know, we're not making a lot of, you know, really memorable films. No, you we're know, not. What classics have we come out in the last couple of years? I think people are excited by Gravity, um, and I think that's that's pretty wonderful. Uh, but I, I think those are few and far between. And I think that there is a hunger in the audience for experience. And there's a hunger in the audience uh, for genuine cinema. This is the third week running where um, you know Gravity took the number one picture. Um, Captain Phillips took number two, and Carrie did number three. And, and the positioning between Carrie and and gravity in the third week was profound. It, it's usually there's a 50% reduction, you know, week after week after week, and um, there wasn't. Uh, I think gravity did 31 million and Kerry did 17. Um, so the demographic has changed. People want better films. People want experiences. Uh, bigger budgets do not make better films. Um, I think that you have uh, a cult of celebrity that has eroded the idea of a movie star because we've we've gotten to know these people that we call actors and stars far too well that that we we've, we've become uncomfortable with our relationship with them, and I I think that you know our, our market is such that there is an opportunity for small regional filmmakers to develop themselves because I think there are huge voids in the marketplace. I think there are huge opportunities for sensibilities and perceptions that are not being filled by Hollywood. Um, I, I don't know if, 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 you were, if you're old enough to remember, Rex, uh, the Sun International and Pacific Western pictures. Yeah, I'm, you remember I'm older those? Than you are. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I know. But the 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 issue is, um, you know, pages. You know, Doty Dayton Productions, where the red fern grows, uh, in search of historic Jesus, in search of Noah's Ark. You know, these films that would wander into town, and then you know would leave two weeks later mm -hmm. uh, with buckets of money, and these things were made for little or no money, and they created a dynamic industry based out of, one was based out of Portland, the other was based out of uh, Utah, and it was a totally different dynamic and a totally different way of approaching the market. They would come in, they would four-wall, they would, you know, put ads on the TV, and they would fill the theaters, mm -hmm. and their markets would be secondary and third level, you know, rural and, and suburban marketplaces. And they did great business. Well, using that model, that goes back to what I said before. I think that, you know, if, if, if tomorrow I make a movie and I can raise money, then what I should be concentrating on, if, or, I mean, obviously part, partner with somebody who's savvy enough in that area, but if I can't, I should raise 
uh, enough money to make my movie at as low a cost as I possibly can and raise additional money as much as I possibly can so that I can go out and for wallet where that's available so that I can uh, have a, a marketing budget to promote the film and take it on the road. So if as a filmmaker... I'm going to I'm going to go that route and travel the country where I need to spend most of my finance money raising finance money is in the the back end the 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 marketing and and the getting it on the screen. Well, I I would disagree with that to to some level and okay. I I think that um I take a look at films like Left Behind um uh and, and you know in christian based faith based films that are that are focused and uh, on a specific demographic they have a, a laser point uh accuracy on on who they're making these movies for sure and they constantly you know address it and i would say that you know probably you have to make something that is going to be uh, have some level of technical and artistic substance with actors who right. really can act. Oh, absolutely. Um, and then you have to probably spend some money on on focusing on a very aggressive social media dynamic mm-hmm. um, on on uh, and, and product placement in the social media, and also understand that. With dilution of television, you know, when we we did television ads when a show came to town, there was only three channels, and right. now we're into the hundreds and hundreds of channels. But within that, there is the ability to understand your demographic, and then you know, buy cable ad time, which is dirt cheap. It could be as low as seventy cents an ad spot in a local market, mm-hmm. um, and then you know, be very focused on who you're making the film for. I, I think the conception that we know as the mass mass market is gone. I, I think that it, there are some crossovers when a big title comes out, like Gravity. Um, but you know, take a look at title of uh, Pacific Rim, which uh, you know, a friend of mine and I talked about yesterday, and it was a, a mass market film. Uh, they thought it was, but it really was a fanboy piece. Or you take a look at a film like um, John Carter, which totally ignored its base and tried to adhere itself to a mass market when the subject matter really had little or no appeal to the mass market. Right. There wasn't a lot of crossover pieces. You know, a bunch of 50-year-old or 55-year-old men and women don't have a, a large interest in going to see John Carter. Um, at the same time, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, when I was a, a moviegoer, the audience was 18 to 24-year-old males skewed, and that that market has been severely diluted by video gaming right. and the Internet. So, you know, we're talking about knowing specificity in terms of your market placement. I, I think that one of the interesting models that I saw is a guy made a documentary on the Van Nuys Airport about one specific runway at the Van Nuys Airport. And he made the film, and it was in high definition, and he he skewed the film 
towards you know a, a real solid documentary. This is the runway they use for Casablanca uh, when you know when Bogart and uh, the, the inspector took off to fight for the free French, um, and he made this whole two-hour documentary uh, on this runway. Well, he ignored the traditional market. And he skewed himself specifically for the aviation nuts. And he ended up selling 400,000 DVDs, easily recouping his budget and making a profit for himself. Um, I know other people who've made low-budget films in, for example, Portland, Oregon, and have skewed it towards you know, the running community and have done well with it. Well, I do think um, that we are, as with anything, I mean, it, it's a niche marketplace. And if you know your, if you know your niche, if you know your target audience, and if they are strong advocates for whatever you're doing, and you have that relationship with them, then you know you could be a huge fish in a small pond, uh, meaning in a singular, in a singular niche, but that could constitute millions and millions of people. Um, I think that the faith-based analogy is one that's interesting, and um, it it works. And yet, there's, uh, I believe, because of my background dealing with faith-based issues and, and groups and people, that there's a there's there's a singularity of cause in that 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 pe- makes people crusaders to begin with. So they're more apt to support something that uh, aligns with them than, say, a science fiction person or a horror picture person because you may have, you know, a, a genre that is, is split by thousands of different, you know, sub subcategories where a faith-based film, um, while there are differing denominations, you know, there's one kind of overall looming cause that, that tends to unite people and, to, and they tend to be active anyway, where I can't say that the average... You know, sci-fi or horror viewer is, a, is an active crusader. Um, so, it, you know, I mean, if I were to make faith-based films, I would I would feel fairly secure in in the chance that if I make a good one with the right talent and the right budget and the right hit the right notes, that uh, I'm going to have an army out there helping me get it into the pictures. I'm not so sure that I have the same um, degree of faith my horror audience or my rom-com audience or my western audience. If that, if that makes no, sense. no, you know, essentially, um, it's it, it's a real issue, and and the real issue is, you're you're dealing with a moving target. Your faith based people are are fairly static, and they're pretty identifiable in terms of of, of that market shape. What's not identifiable is, is where's the science fiction community? Where science fiction at one time had a core base of four million fans um, in in the U.S. And right now, um, you have an issue. The issue is a lot of them have gotten older and don't go to theaters anymore because they don't like the the experience. A lot of them, you know, view on the younger ones view on the web or view, you know, in some IP television derived, you know, service. And a lot of them really resent and, you know, having to pay for, you know, that kind of theatrical experience. I, I think that one of the things that most filmmakers 
have to do is, is readily define your audience and know who you're making the film for. I think if, if you know, and, and that sometimes changes. Um, you know, we've made films before where, you know, we've made this film and we thought it would be readily accessible, but, you know, the trends had shifted. The interest had moved on. And and the pattern in, in the uh, sci-fi community really shifted. One minute you're, you're dealing with giant spiders, the next minute everything's about sharks, and the next minute it's all about disasters, and the next minute it's all about, you know, you know, jellyfish, you know, you never really know, but there's right. trending that hits in the marketplace. And and these programmers who sit um, in these network offices have to have product for that, in their mind, is easily definable and easily translatable in terms of a marketing message to the consumer. So the the real issue is there's really a lack of entrepreneurial uh, film environments. It all is, is, on a studio level, it's mass production and defined within replicable models. So therefore, you know, I'm concerned that, you know, the point and process of innovation is not uh, being substantiated and is not being promoted. And I think that we're at a time in film history where we really need uh, people to step up and, and develop entrepreneurial models that can substantiate artistic visions. Because if not, we're really in danger in losing you know, some very key traditions within our North American culture. Wow, no, excellent point. Let me, uh, I'm going to have to take a, a short break here and have you stand by and have listeners stand by, and then we'll come back and uh, we'll continue this discussion. I've got uh, other things I want to ask you about as well. Uh, but for now, I'm going to take a moment and uh, and let the audience know. You're listening to Rex Sykes Movie Beat. The official URL is rexsikes.com. That's my name. I'm your host, Rex Sykes. And, and there's over 400 hours of archived shows right there at the interviews blog that you can listen to anytime 24-7. You can also listen live right there from the website as well as from Blog Talk Radio. You can get it as a podcast from iTunes and, and many different ways. Download them as MP3s. Uh, the main thing is to share them with your filmmaker friends and your fans and, and your colleagues and uh, help spread the word and keep uh, the listenership growing. Um, whenever you uh, listen to a show, rate and review it from iTunes or uh, comment on it in the comment sections on Blog Talk Radio. It helps increase our visibility to listeners and, and people out on the Internet who may or may not have yet stumbled across the program. And when you do that, we really do appreciate it. And I appreciate all the love and the support and the phone calls and the emails that I get you know, each and every day from, from people around the world who uh, greatly value what we're doing. And, and uh, I'm so happy to be doing it, and I really value my guests like Bill and, and, and others who, who give of themselves to help uh, all the rest of us um, do what we want to do and what we love to do. All right, uh, my very next guest is Billy Ray. He's a screenwriter and director. You know him from having written Captain Phillips. He also co-wrote The Hunger Games. He's written and directed Shattered Glass and Breach and others. And he's going to be coming up on Tuesday, October 29th. He's a really great guy. You're going to love to hear what Billy has to say. And, uh, and we're going to talk with him on the 29th 
of October. That's Tuesday, same time, same place, 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Pacific. So be sure to tell, uh, share that information and be sure to tune in and join us. Chat rooms are always open when we record live. Um, one other thing I want to point out, and uh, I would re- be remiss if I don't, and that is um, Bill is the guest today, but coming up uh, this weekend in Woodridge, Woodbridge, Illinois, is the B-Movie Celebration, and uh, there are going to be prolific directors like Jim Wynorski and Fred Olin Ray and Kevin Tenney and, and others in attendance. It's a, it's a fabulous celebration of the B-Movie. I'll let Bill tell you about it in a second. Uh, it's from the 25th to the 27th. And uh, you're going to want to be there. The uh, movie site itself is B, as in the letter B, moviecelebration.com, bmoviecelebration.com. It's the seventh annual B movie celebration. So uh, go check it out, get your tickets, make your plans, and, uh, and come join everyone at the B movie celebration uh, this coming weekend at the Hollywood Boulevard in Woodridge, Illinois. All right, so we're back with Mr. Bill Dever. And, uh, Bill, you want to say more about the uh, celebration coming up? Well, one of the things, it, it's, uh, you know, the, the conception for the celebration was um, a way where people could have the ability to sit down with uh, filmmakers who established themselves in low-budget filmmaking and who had a track record of low-budget filmmaking and for me, the prime motivation was using it as an incubator, the ability to disseminate information and the ability to let you know aspiring filmmakers, film fans, sit down with these folks and get an idea of how they thought and how they approached the, the industry. The, the, the conception of where the, the, the B celebration is is... It really is, you know, three days of, of fun and three days of, of real, uh, you know, excitement and just seeing cutting-edge films, great classics, and movies that we all, uh, you know, remember and, and have great fondness towards, uh, and then talk about them. I think that there are a lot of people who are film fans, a lot of people who are uh, aficionados of, of lower budget productions, and uh, what I'm trying to do is maybe counter a bit of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 riff tracks situation, where you know, in a lot of ways they've you know they've been subject to a lot of scorn and derision, but in, in other ways, if we take a look at our cinematic heritage with people like. Bogdanovich and Coppola and Jonathan Demme, you know, uh, practitioners of great film art, Scorsese, we uh, we know that they, you know, originated in and evolved from getting an entry point into the industry through B cinema. And and my my goal was to provide a little glimpse into that world for this regional market, this Midwest market. In the hope that that somebody you know would get the spark to say, yeah, well, if I, if I make these films that are overtly marketable, maybe I will be able to start laying a foundation in this regional market that will transpose itself 
and allow itself to be uh, evolved to a point where we can um, bring um, ideas and, and marketable product created and produced within the Midwest region. You know, I, I take a look at people like William Girdler. Have you ever heard of William Girdler Rex? I've heard the name. I don't, I don't know how much I know about it. You know, William Girdler was a guy out of Louisville, Kentucky, who wanted to make movies. And he, he made films like Abbey. Uh, oh. He made films like Grizzly. Um, and oh. and they're, they're B-exploitation films, but he, he started models for regional production. Mm-hmm. Um, the greatest, you know, film marketers, you know, were guys like Kroger Babb, who, you know, was an exploitation film marketer who came from Ohio. Um, and there are focuses on people and ideas and, and, and subjects that uh, I, I think that, you know, we, we failed in the Midwest, we failed to recognize our film heritage. Uh, at one time, a company called SNA Polyscope uh, was the number one producer of, of filmed entertainment in America. Uh, Chaplin got his start in Chicago. And, you know, until Hollywood, you know, drew these people into play, Chicago really was a key dynamic center of, of film uh, production. Um, it was, a, you know, and really the foundations of Hollywood lie within what was done in Chicago and, and the, the movement of the Chicago industry into Los Angeles created what we know as the film industry. Um, and I think that there are people and traditions, you know, we've had pockets of production in, 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 in Cincinnati, in Indianapolis, you know, one of the classic films that were made in Kansas, uh, Carnival of Souls, uh, which is still a very good film, and the perception is uh, is that with technology coming into play, technologies like Roku and all kinds of interactive mediums uh, being presented, that there is an ability for people with a Midwest vision and a Midwest perspective to make a product set that is drawn from and, and built upon Midwest values. Um, I think there are a lot of opportunities if people decide that they're going to make something that is not solely based on a Hollywood perspective, but is based on a perspective of, of a value-based culture that's drawn from the Midwest. Hmm. You know, at one time... Go ahead. No, you go ahead, please. No, you know, from my perception, at one time Chicago was a huge center of production in in film. And at one time, Chicago was the second center of television production. Uh, You know, we have great buildings that were set up in in downtown Chicago just to support television. Um, There has been innovation and there has been substantiation and origination of the entertainment industry that, that, that came out of the Midwest. And I think there's a real opportunity if filmmakers based in the Midwest 
who can start collectively working with each other shape and define their marketplace. Well, see, now, I like that. I mean, you and I are in the Midwest for very maybe very different reasons. I mean, I'm I'm not here because I choose the Midwest. I'm here because I'm raising my children. But I always said that if I had to be here, then I wanted the area that I was to be, you know, the, the entertainment mecca of the world. I wanted it to be, you know, a hotbed of production and industry, you know, and to work toward that goal. And what I like, and I know that you like, I mean, in our conversations that you enjoy the Midwest and you like, and I, I don't dislike it, let me put that, but that, that you enjoy being here, um, whereas I enjoy being in Hollywood and I go back and forth, you know, all the time whenever I'm able and, you know, to live there and live here. But but um, uh, I agree with you immensely. One of my criticisms of, of Wisconsin essentially has always been, or the Midwest in general, is that people didn't seem to want to collaborate. Everything was very fractionated and getting people together to work on projects or to partner up and to have a, a slate of projects to actually build an industry. I mean, they've been making movies all over this country in different states and cities since they've been making movies. They do it all around the world, and they do one-offs all the time, and they either rise or fall, or you never hear of them. But to actually create what you might call a regional production center or create a hub of entertainment in the Midwest, um, or in different pockets of the Midwest, is is a thrilling concept, and one that that, that, that I... Before we even met, it have been one that I've embraced because that's what I want to be involved with. That's why I one of the reasons why I love Hollywood is because it's all happening there. Or why I like Manhattan and because it's happening there. Or why I like Chicago because it's happening there. And I'd like to see it happen in different areas as well. And um, and so to work toward that goal and to find people I know has been kind of a quest of yours and into you know. Um, you know, be able to work local, locally and, and yet, you know, be part of the market that's out there. Well, you know, one of the things we, we did with Gila is, is we didn't really have – we created a, a CGI facility in, in Indiana where we brought in a couple of brilliant young guys and, and they worked and, and did some work. And then, you know, uh, when the project was finished, they went their way. But there is immense talent here, and there is immense uh, ability here. And I know you like Los Angeles. You know, I, I, you, mm-hmm. you speak so glowing of it when you're ever there. And I, and I understand that. But I've worked in Los Angeles, and I know, and I have friends that work in Los Angeles, and it's not the same. It's They are suffering from... Um, a huge tax issue. Oh, right. They are suffering from decentralized in the uh, in the industry. You know, you have Warner Brothers that has 30 stages and only seven are being utilized. It, it, it's not the same because, you know, incentives in Canada and Louisiana and New York State right. are pulling production away from Los Angeles and decentralizing the business. Um as well, you know, technology seems to be driven, and, and you know, Netflix, which is a major producer, is, is based out of, you know, Silicon Valley, and, and the perception of the industry is that it truly is a global industry. If you take a look at the trend for Chinese uh, 
development of the marketplace and the positioning of Wanda Dylan by the purchase of AMC Theaters and in, in some of the analysis and stock analysis that are going out in the market today, that there are people and perceptions that tr- truly say that the dominance of Hollywood is over. And I, I would say that that's correct. I think you're talking about people for the first time uh, realizing that uh, the film industry is a global marketplace because all markets are becoming open. So, you know, in reality, you know, um, Hollywood has always been a very regional uh, production center, but it's been a global regional production center skewed on producing American product. Now, American product is starting to lose some of its cachet in the international scene in in many countries worldwide. 90% of all film revenue um, has been because of of American productions. But now it's probably closer to 70%, uh, and it's decreasing slowly each year, which is good because it's important that the world understands, you know, and, and can celebrate each other's culture. You know, um, you know, at one time, Cinema Americano, you know, dominated everything. And that's start, starting to be less and less. And I, I think that uh, a perspective in the marketplace is, is that with that decentralization, there exists within the Midwest the ability to, you know, pull people and pull uh, projects together. But, like, you and I know that because of what it takes to make a good movie, that people bring into play a singular vision and pursue that singular vision and kick it all the way home to produce their movie. In many ways, working collaboratively with other teams of people or other filmmakers is, is a lot like herding cats because it's like right. getting a, a Presbyterian, a Jew, a Muslim, a Catholic in one room and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to define how we're going to market God. Right. Well, <laughs> it's not going to work. And it, it, it's, it's just by the nature of the beast. It's just, it, it is such that, you know, these people uh, have perceptions and these people have uh, a need to produce their singular project. And, and sometimes because of the level of passion you have to bring to a project, it's hard to see the forest for the trees. One of the things I, I'd like to digress for a second is, is that I, I was very, very lucky um, uh, living here in, in Indiana. I, I, I had worked in film before, I made mistakes, had some successes, but I had basically... I owned a cable company and did a lot of technology stuff. But I, I, I met someone named Jim Winorski. Uh, Jim uh, is, is probably the most profitable director in Hollywood. doesn't live in Hollywood anymore. And he is the most, uh, in, 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 you know, and I know he's been a guest on your show. He's, he's right. been an, an engaging and vital character in, in the genre film industry. And I was very lucky in 2007 uh, to meet him. And he's become a a good friend and someone who I have a lot of respect for. Uh, 
the the issue is that Jim came here to the Midwest, and you know he said there is something here. This is a part of the world that has not been seen on screen by a lot of people. There's something fresh. There's something new. There's something vital here. And and through Jim's perception and his vision for the Midwest, he brought a film called Fire from Below uh, into Indianapolis. Um, And we we uh, filmed in caves, you know, for weeks and, you know, made this this sci-fi movie of the week. But that was, you know, Jim's persistence and his vision as a director, but also as an innovator that, you know, really brought uh, me into into play. And uh, for that, I'm always going to be grateful to him. And, and I think that one of the things that filmmakers have to realize is is just like the guild system of old, we really have to rely on, on the wisdom and the guidance and the perception of mentors. Right, right. Um, you know, these people, you know, have done things and have innovated. And in, in Jim's case, he learned at the feet of Roger Corman. Now, I think Jim you know, is often derided, but, you know, regarding, you know, people saying, well, his films are not you know, this or that. Well, his films are actually fantastic. The problem is people do not understand uh, the medium or uh, the economic constraints that are put on someone like Jim, where he basically moves heaven and earth to tell a story with very few resources. Um, I think Michael Bay would have a hard time keeping up with Jim. Um, And, uh, you know, having worked with him on numerous projects and seeing how he works, um, you know, he is someone that is a walking repository of cinematic knowledge for the past hundred years and can recall precedent or ideas or shots or scenes and bring them into play and put it back on screen, reinterpreting it and and put together a saleable and a marketable product that I think is second to none in terms of the constraints that are put on him and the ability to achieve um, you know, something that is a cogent, salient product. Well, um, and 180 film years, <laughs> films later. Well, that's right. And, you know, he, yeah. he, he's a machine. And uh, I'm going to tell you, on a personal level, um, he's a very kind, uh, substantive, uh, and, and creative and compassionate human being. Um, and... Uh, I would encourage anybody that is um, online or listening to this to really ask themselves, uh, you know, who they can learn from, who they can model themselves after, and who, you know, they can, you know, build with. Because, you know, the French brought an idea forward called the auteur theory. There there was one singular vision um, behind the film. And I would say on larger budget films today, that doesn't exist. They, they create this giant behemoth of a machine, and this machine produces the film, and they have these fabulously talented effects and cinematographers and actors and sound designers you know, who are the best and the brightest uh, you know, putting their resources 
to what's on screen. Um, in a case like Jim Wynorski, I think we will find and, and know that um, guys like Jim truly are the author uh, of their film. Truly, you know, their hand is on everything from music to to lighting to you know to acting to screenplay. These people really are the authors, the auteurs uh, of cinema today, because they work within the low budget dimension. And and coming back to is is because they're such complete cinematic artists, people like Kevin Tenney and Fred Olin Ray and Jim Wynorski, is one of the reasons we're having them at the B celebration, because there's such a resource for people in regional production centers, and maybe sitting down with them for five or ten minutes, you will get a perception on maybe how you can perceive the marketplace and how the marketplace could be shaped to your vision. And that's what Jim and Fred and everyone else, you know, who's, who has any longevity in the industry has done. Yeah, I mean, that is, that is fantastic. I mean, that is, frankly, the reason why I started my show was to be able to connect people up with people like Jim, yourself, and others uh, for uh, mentorship where uh, because people have they've either reached out to my guests and connected with them personally or otherwise I don't make that avenue happen for them I mean I'm not the middleman on that but my my goal was to expose people and let them listen and let have a discussion and let them learn from that and then you know if they're um, if the cards fall in the right place and they and they can you know connect and learn from the people again people make have made movies together because they met from listening to you know uh, my show so I mean uh, the the notion of a mentor to me is an extremely important one, and one that I think is is kind of bandied about today, but so 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 missed. I mean, you know, we don't have. I've always likened Hollywood to a meritocracy, which it is. You know, you work your way up. You get as an actor, you get you know an extra role, and then you get one line, and then if you're good at the one line, they might give you a, a line and a half, and then two, and then you know a little bit more. You you work your way up. The, the apprenticeship that used to be in, in industry, you know, whether it was farming or cooking or steel factory or whatever, bookmaking, um, is something we don't see anymore when, once the rise of, of collegiate education came along and, and, and our school process. But that ability to connect with a filmmaker like Jim or someone in person and to learn from them and imbibe what their thinking process is and their strategies for, for doing things uh, is just you know, an experience that is 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 sorrowfully needed, and and unlike I think any that uh, and the relationships that can develop are unlike any that uh, that are that are being proffered today. You know, I mean, so well, I, I that, that, yeah, I just was glad that everybody goes to the movie celebration for that for that alone. Well, the 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 thing is is I take a look at you know when. When you know when when the founders or the people who are prodigious in um, today's film industry were students, there was really three colleges or universities in the U.S. that had um, film and television programs. There was you know USC, UCLA, uh, and NYU. NYU. 
now this is expanded in every every small college and every um, you know every uh, online program and now all have formed colleges and that you know we have organizations like the New York Film uh, Institute and New York Film Academy and we have Full Sail and and, and these people you know charge exorbitant amounts of money and are producing students at an alarming rate into an industry that can't possibly intake them. Uh, you have, you know, you have 47,000 people working in film and television globally. And every year, uh, America produces 10 to 12,000 graduates in either a film, new media, or a television program. And that's a problem. It's a problem there's, because there's the market's just not there. Well, what I have issue with, you know, is that it's a cultural phenomenon. It's not, you know, it's not special to the film business in, in my way of thinking. In other words, um, and I'm going to say something, I know it won't make me very popular with many people, but to have more of something isn't necessarily a good thing. For example, we have more film festivals today than ever before because we can have them. We can have more filmmakers make movies today because they can go out and buy stuff cheaply. And whether they should or shouldn't is is another issue. We have more film schools available today than we ever have before. And it's kind of like what happened at fast food. When, the, when fast food happened and you got your first like hamburger joint in your small town somewhere in the Midwest around the country. It was it was a treat. It was great, you know. And now they they are on every corner of every city around the world, and they all taste alike. I used to go to Japan, and if I ate at a McDonald's in Japan, it tasted like fish. It didn't taste like the McDonald's you were used to because they now everything tastes the same wherever you go. And so, just having more of of something isn't necessarily a good thing. Um, I, I think you know what we need is is really fewer things but quality things so fewer filmmakers but quality filmmakers and uh fewer festivals but really quality film festivals fewer film schools but really quality film schools and it's never probably going to happen because this is the american capitalistic way and this is just how things go and this is the evolution of of humankind here in our country and around the world but the call for quality and the call for um, people to work together and to try and create stuff and to concentrate on great story and and as good a production that you can and to make movies. I had a conversation with somebody saying, you know, there's five of us here. We should all just do stuff together. And I got an email today or a message today saying, maybe, hey, maybe we'll do that, what you mentioned in the car that day. You know, we should all just work together. Um, I think the thing that hurts uh, the Midwest film business is the notion of, and, and, and I use the term now um, pejoratively, our tour, in that everybody wants to be the helmsman, everybody wants to be directors. They all want to do their projects, but they don't go, let me come and be a hire on on your project, or let me support you on, on, on yours, and then you support me on mine. They don't, they don't figure out a way to work together to, you know, where the sum of the parts are greater than the whole. Um, Everybody just does this standalone, you know, knockoff, one-off kind of thing, in an attempt to to make a name rather than build an industry in their in their locale. 
And lastly, I'll finish up with saying, and then I have a question from the chat room after 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 you comment, but um, that I want to ask you um, is that you know Hollywood moved west for a couple of reasons. One was the light and the weather and the climate. They could shoot longer hours and they could shoot uh, more year days than they could you know in the in the cold. But they also moved to be in television, particularly moved to be away from uh, network involvement. I mean, they 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 essentially moved west to be independent of uh, the powers that had that at once were. So uh, you know, today we can be independent of Hollywood. We can create wherever we are, and we just have to figure out a way to work together to do that and to raise the bar instead of diluting everything, which is to me what happens. You know, when when there's just, you know, it's that old saying: if you have steak all the time, it's no longer, no longer tasty. Mm-hmm. That's so I'm sorry I went true. off on a long thing here, but huh? No, that's fine. Um. So, so the question becomes one of of how do we create these production centers, you know, in in a regional area, and 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 figure out how to you know revise you know our our models of distribution so that we can um, do do what you propose. Well, the 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 the, the issue is from from my perception is is that you don't really need a, a studio, a contiguous studio, but you should have input and cross-ownership into film sales organizations, organizations that have the ability to place your product with iTunes or Hulu or uh, with Netflix or within Redbox, the ability to have someone collectively, you know, buy a booth at a con film festival and sell your product to people who come, you know, trotting by. Um, you need some kind of commitment for regional people to work on a regional basis towards a film sales goal, the ability to sell your product into the marketplace. And I think that it's something that's sadly lacking is the ability for, and I, and I know this is a dirty word sometimes, but to work in a cooperative model, an economic cooperative model for right. film sales and distribution. Right. No, I agree. And, it, and it's finding those people who are willing to do that. Well, I think there are a lot of people that aspire to it, but unfortunately, you know, a lot of people who are attracted to this business are attracted to it not because of the ability to either make money or the ability for them to create, um, you know, income for themselves or create income for their families. But in reality, what they really want to do is create a lifestyle for themselves. Right, right. And filmmaking is very, very, very hard work. I'm at best mediocre at it. And um, the only thing I may have going for myself is is that I I like to work hard when I do do it. Um, The 
perception of what I'm looking at and the perception of what I, I'm, I'm seeing is that a lot of these kids who are going to school today really want the lifestyle. You know, they really want to be perceived as, as artists and successful artists. But they're really, it's a constant struggle. And the biggest success in this business is the ability to work in this business on a continual basis. It's it's not it's not you know rabbit success. You know, there's been so many stories of directors who've been you know you know taste of the moment and you know then were discarded, and then they they kind of look back and say, well, what happened? Um, I I think the biggest genius of Wynorski is the ability for him to continue to work over 30 years, you know, and and that is exceedingly, exceedingly rare in this business. You take a look at someone like Peter Bogdanovich and, and, you know, um, you know, he, he makes some of the greatest pictures ever made in the history of American cinema. He made Paper Moon, Last Picture Show, uh, and suddenly he decides through some reason to make a musical with Burt Reynolds and his career, you know, crashes okay. to the ground. Uh, you have people like William Friedkin who, uh, you know, made fantastic films. People who have, ha- have rose very high, but have crashed to the ground and, and, you know, like Icarus. Uh, and, and, and it, that is time and time again in the marketplace. The ability to keep working in this business is the success in this business. It, it, it yeah. is really a privilege to be working in this business, and it's a rarity to continue working in it for decades at a time. I, I do think, and then I, I want to ask you too, I mean, that's a very excellent point. Uh, I, I do think that most people miss, because because of the Hollywood myth that it's all glamour and everything, they, they, people don't understand that if you're working a, a television show, you're working, you know, eight to ten days solid straight, you know, as if you were working a factory job. You're working 10, 12, 15-hour days. It's it's not a glamorous lifestyle. Now, when you're on hiatus, it can be glamorous because you may have pocketed some money and you can travel and all that kind of stuff. But when you when you really consider that most of Hollywood is blue collar, it's 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 laborers. It's it is not you know the 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 tiny percentage of stardom glamour that people see, whether you're a director or otherwise. The directors are working long hours, day in and day out, you know, uh, to get something done. It's uh, recently, I heard a, a very delightful person speak. I won't name them, but they have success as a Hollywood writer. And they said, "But what people don't get is they think, you know, that once you, you know, become a writer, then uh, a successful writer, that that like heaven's gates open and pieces. It's a job. It's a it's a job. It's a job. You work for other people. Unless you think you're going to sit around and write spec scripts all the time." You know, you're you're a writer for hire, and you have to treat it as if it were a regular job. And I do think that a lot of people miss that point. They just, well, what they you mentioned, they think of a life. And, and the fact is, you know, I get up every morning, and I go to my office, and I, I work till you know, 5 o'clock, and then I work some more at night usually. And it's a job. And it, it's, you know, uh, it's, it's not the most stable of all jobs, but, you know, the personal satisfaction you get out of it is great. Um, 
But, you know, uh, I'll tell you that for the most part, most people in the film industry make far less money than a GM factory worker, and the retirement benefits are far less than a GM factory worker. This is, you know, you have to love what you do to stick with it because it is tough. And it's not easy. And there are people involved in it, and there are dynamics, and there's economics involved that change very rapidly and often, you know, to a detrimental point. Um, and, you know, you know, we struggle every day, and it's, uh, it's fun. There is no glamour in it. Uh, you know, when you work on a low-budget set, Jim Wynorski or such, you know, it's 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 the antithesis of glamour. You're working hard. You're working for 14 to 17 hours a day. You're working in the middle of the night. Um, if you're in the Midwest, you know, not all seasons are hospitable. I remember, you know, we were shooting Gila in, in December in a, a gravel pit, uh, you know, 11 o'clock at night, and, and it's raining, and it's it's wet, and it's cold, and there's nothing, you know, we're knee-deep in mud, and there's nothing glamorous about it. You know, we are workers in the field, and and you better love what you're doing because it ain't easy. No, it's it's truly not. I I a couple of years ago produced a co-produced a film in Florida and uh, and thought, well, you know, it's Florida, it's 80 degrees, and it was until one week when it got down to like 17 degrees at nighttime, and uh, we had to cancel our. Uh, we had to we had to move to cover sets because we were out at a pool and you couldn't shoot it in that kind of weather. But it was colder than I've ever been, even in the Midwest. It was this damp, wet, cold that I just I found it unbelievably. Um, hostile, and uh, and I would never ever have thought that you know there in the middle of Florida I would I would experience that. I want to ask you a question from the chat room. She's been very patient. Princess Scribe is on Twitter, and she's asked a question, but she's also made a comment, uh, a comment question. I want to ask you both of those. I'm going to ask the second one first. She says, "I'm always surprised that we hold artists to such extreme standards. Hall of Famers are lauded if they miss seven swings out of ten, but why are filmmakers so denigrated if they the first time?" Out, they miss at the bat, you know. Um, and, well, and it is, because it is, you know, it is, Hall of Famers, the, the amount of money that's at risk. Well, you know? granted, very true. But I mean, I, I think know, she's Michael Camino made uh, the Deer Hunter, which was right. an opus of cinematic art. Then mm-hmm. you know he was castigated for making Heaven's Gate. Yeah. And looking back on it, Heaven's Gate is not a bad motion picture. But the problem is the egos involved in it, and the dollars involved, and then the you know the level of of agita that you know expending those dollars produces creates a lot of recrimination, a lot of jealousy, and if it doesn't hit out of the the park immediately, then the economic model does not tolerate failure. And, and it is an un, it is an unfair thing. In, in other words, what you've said earlier is that you know a Hall of Famer is one member on a team. If they struck out the entire game, and the the, the team could still win, or they could lose. I mean, it, but they're a player on the team, and yet the filmmaker, the director, is is elevated to a status of it's his or her. Uh, project that that lives or falls. It's not they're, they're not blaming the marketing. 
people. They're not blaming the fact that they opened on a bad weekend. They're not blaming, you know, everybody else that helped make the movie what it was or anything else. It, it just is, sits on someone's shoulders differently. Than, well, look at, look than at, look at John them. Carter, uh, that movie. Mm-hmm. That film was not a bad motion picture. It, it wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. But, you know, the misstep that occurred uh, on that film was a, a term of marketing perception and defining your product. They failed to define the product well for the public. In fact, they, they, they were people have written books about it. It was so bad. But, you know, who they're going to blame is the, is the director. And right. quite frankly, uh, he, he, he doesn't deserve it. Um, you know, and in most cases they don't. I mean, if it's a, if it's, if the movie truly sucks, that's one thing. Well, he, he does, the movie sucks. That, you know, you take. You it know, may not be that person, right? And another man's wine is another man's poison. You know, it, sure. It's a matter of, of 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 perception. That there's a lot of elements that go into it. You can get one at bad actor who will drag right. down the whole Thanks. film, and if you fail to get rid of them. Uh, then you're in, in, in problem. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, working on a film with Jim, and, and Jim said, you know, you're crazy to have this actress in it. And uh, I, I felt sorry for her. I made a commitment to her, and I and I uh, let her ride for a couple of days. And it became more than apparent that Jim was 100% right. She was not right for the role, and I don't think she really believed she was right for the role, but wanted to perceive the whole situation and, and see yeah. it through. But, you know, you had to make hard decisions uh, because it would denigrate the whole tone of the film. And I well, think at the end of the day, that's, you know, where experience comes in. Right. Oh, I, I agreed. And I and I personally believe at, at a particular level that it's really the producer's fault. It's not, and, and, and not, you know, not the director's fault, because most people, unless the director is the producer and put the project together and, you know, the whole thing, somebody's hired this person, they've hired, they've developed a project, and they, they usually get final cut. Few directors actually get final cut um, a, 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 in the right um, a money park. In other words, some top-tier directors get final cut. And of course, now all the people coming out with their own little projects um, you know the democratization of film all want their final cuts, but in in real practice, you know a lot of people don't get it. The producers get the final cut, and um, and so you know you can arguably say it's the producer's responsibility and the marketing. It's just like if I make a pair of shoes, if I've got bad marketing, the shoes can be great. They can you know they can be the best shoes in the world, but nobody knows about it. If it doesn't get to the right uh, channels and it doesn't get to the right uh, place on the shelves where people could buy them. There's any number of things that can tank that pair of shoes. So uh, the same is true about about film and filmmaking. I, I I always like. I mean, I don't think that filmmaking is any different than making any other product except for the creative side to it. But there's a creative side in making shoes as well. And somehow we think that because we're storytellers that we play by a different set of rules. And I, I don't really think when it comes to the market that we play by much different well, rules. Well, I'm going to take exception to your producer's comment because sometimes a producer, you know, has to deal with money issues and impact well, and perceptions uh, that the money is imposed. So it's never really a clear-and-cut answer that this is right. this and this is that. You know, at, at, at the end of the day... Um, 
uh, we take a look and, and we you know we we take a look at you know Ed Wood and Ed Wood you know was was called the worst director of all time, but because of, of the cachet his films have perpetuated, his films have endured and he's developed uh, a persona and a perception in the marketplace that uh, really. <laughs> You know, could we really say, uh, in all measures, was he a failure? Well, no, he wasn't. You know, his 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 films have endured. His films saw distribution. Seventy uh, percent of the films produced today do not see distribution. Seventy percent of the films that are made have a hard hard time achieving the marketplace. Um, and. You know, at the end of the day, um, you know, success is getting your product out there. And, and then what's really interesting is, is that you make a film, you work very hard on it, and you try your best or think you're trying your best for the most part. And, and then some blogger who sits in his parents' basement decides that in a, in a, uh, in a fit of pith and vinegar, to uh, basically rip your film apart. And the fact is, and, and part of the problem and, and part of the, the lack, loss of innocence and, and awe and wonder uh, about today's film market is this thing called the Internet. It gives everybody the ability to broadcast their opinion to a mass market. And many times, these opinions are not worth listening to. True. Uh, because there's no discipline and there's no... Um, evocative thought or perception that goes along to it or balance. It's just basically uh, venom for venom's sake. Um, but, you know, behind every, you know, every film that you see uh, on Netflix or on Redbox or on TV or in the theater, someone has given their all, has done, you know, what they can to bring that into the marketplace and it's just for being there, they should be lauded. Um, right, like oh, I agree. Like having a book on the shelf. And the fact is, because of the lack of cinema education and the lack of perception uh, in the marketplace in terms of the confines the films are often made of, they, people will compare a Jim Wynorski movie with a Michael Bay movie. And truly, they're apple and oranges. <coughs> Indeed. You know? Indeed. Um, listen, we only have a couple... That's an excellent point, and we have got only a couple moments left. Uh, I'm going to still ask you a question and give you about three minutes to answer it, but which isn't fair, but I want to mention the B-Movie Celebration in Woodbridge, Illinois, October Woodridge, 25th. Woodbridge, Illinois, yes. Yeah, yeah Woodridge, Illinois. Uh, Woodridge, Illinois, sorry. Um uh, this weekend, the 25th to the 27th, the website is B, as in the letter B, moviecelebration.com. It's bmoviecelebration.com. There's a great lineup of films, a great uh, cachet of guest directors, Jim Wynorski, Kevin Tenney, uh, Fred Olin Ray, and Bill is going to be there and uh, all sorts of people. So uh, be sure to come on out and uh, join in the 7th annual B Movie Celebration. And again, bmoviecelebration.com. All right, so the question that uh, I'm going to give you just about three minutes to answer uh, is, 
from Princess Scribe. She says, do you think the cost of filmmaking has led to the decline of true indie distribution? For example, in horror, you've got multiple subgenres, creature, bio, psych, torture, etc., that reduce an audience size. And with the skyrocketing cost, it just becomes difficult to create a pure genre piece. I, I think that it's the cost of marketing and uh, that has caused the issue, not the cost of production. Uh, the cost of marketing and the, and the perception uh, and the infrastructure and overhead within a studio organization um, uh, is uh, always a problem because I don't think they're built for distributing uh, edgy horror films. I take a look at films like Halloween, which was distributed to 300 theaters by a company called Compass. Uh, I take a look at a film which I still think is one of the greatest horror films ever made, When a Stranger Calls, the one with Carol Kane. Um, sure was distributed by a small distribution company. I think the ability, the problem is is the market and the films are overburdened by marketing perceptions, marketing costs, marketing overhead that strangle these films. Um, and I think that in terms of horror and, and horror films and, and science fiction films for that matter, that the studios are not the right vehicles to distribute these products. I don't think they understand them. I don't understand. They don't understand the independent nature, and I don't think they understand the fan base. Uh, I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't disagree with any of that. I, I think. Uh, I think you've hit the head on the nail, or the nail on the head, and uh, and uh, hopefully someday, and maybe we'll have to have that conversation in the future. There will be uh, different ways of doing distribution or different people in charge or uh, avenues or venues or, or whatever that uh, can uh, uh, make a difference again. And, uh, and we'll have The to biggest see. problem we have in this industry, whether it's theatrical or production, is the lack of true showmen. Uh, good point. Yeah. yeah. Very good point. No, that's a good point and one, and one that we should revisit. Um, I'm going to have to say goodbye. You've been fabulous. It's been great to have you here. I've enjoyed this discussion very much. I'll see you this weekend, the B-Movie Celebration. Looking forward to that. And uh, as, as should everybody else who's in listening range, be sure to share that information. Share this interview. And, uh, and I want to thank you, Bill. And thank, uh, thank you, Rex. It's been a pleasure. Chat room. All right, and we'll Take talk care. in just a few minutes after the show. And uh, um, all the best. We'll make it a half hour <laughs> because I have to catch up on some phone calls. No so, worries. Uh, right. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, Mr. Bill Dever, uh, I want to thank you for his time. Fascinating guest. I've enjoyed it very much, uh, conversing with him. And thank you for those in the chat room for being there. And for those of you who share uh, this discussion with others, uh, you, my readers uh, and listeners of Movie Beat, I really do appreciate it. I've got many more exciting guests coming up in the near future. I'm just going to tell you and remind you that Billy Ray, uh, the writer of uh, Captain Phillips, now in theaters, and the co-writer of Hunger Games, and, and writer and director of other movies, will be coming up on October 29th. And so please help spread the word and be sure to join us in the chat room and stay tuned and keep sharing the website and these interviews and discussions with all your friends and contacts. You can follow me on Twitter at Rex Sykes Movie BT. That's Rex Sykes Movie BT. The last uh, word is abbreviated. It's Rex Sykes Movie BT, and uh, join us at uh, Facebook at Rex Sykes Movie Beat Friends. Rex Sykes Movie Beat Friends is the friends group. There's the RSMB uh, movie uh, group and, and many others, so check it out on Facebook, but come and join us. 
And uh, everybody have a fabulous day. Make your movies, complete your projects, and until we meet the next time, visit the official site, rexsikes.com. Listen to all those archived interviews in the meantime, and until we meet the next time, that is a wrap. <laughs>